Church attendance is one of the things that has suffered in the wake of COVID. There have been studies done to try to tease out the reasons behind it and all of that. But I think one of the biggest and most obvious reasons for people not attending church is a misunderstanding of what church is. If people understood better what church is, they will run to church rather than away from church, especially in time of crisis. What is church? That's what we want to talk about this morning. Where do people get their ideas about church? People get their ideas about church from their past experiences. The experiences that we had with church and church people during our childhood, for example, can have a significant effect on what we think about church. Church people I knew as a kid colored my attitude about church when I got older. Those experiences were some of the reasons that I didn't want anything to do with church. I liked Jesus well enough, but church people were another thing entirely. People get their ideas about church from popular culture. The portrayal of church and church people in movies and TV shows and books and so forth informs people's understanding of what church is. People get their ideas about church from the news. Stories of scandals that we hear about church leaders, for example, can inform are thinking about what church is. People get their ideas about church from other institutions and organizations and groups. Church is seen as being like a concert, a club, a store, a school, a business. People get their ideas about church from projecting their personal needs and preferences and agendas onto the church. We tend to think about church from a very self-centered point of view, and we use our personal needs and interests and agendas and passions then to define what church is supposed to be. We need to be careful, though, about letting these kinds of sources infuse our understanding of church. Church can become something that is made in our image, if we're not careful. Church can become a human-created thing rather than a jesus created thing. We want to get our ideas about church from the Bible rather than these other places. Church falls short of the ideal that Jesus intended. But that doesn't mean that we should give up aiming for his ideal. Instead, we should continually remind ourselves of the ideal and then keep reaching for it. If you want to become a skilled marksman, hitting the bullseye of the target. You keep practicing and shooting again and again until you consistently can hit the bullseye. The thing you don't do is you don't quit trying or modify the target so it's easier to hit. That's the kind of thing that you don't do. The clearer our understanding of the Jesus-given ideal of church, the better equipped we will be to reach that ideal. We finished our Bible study through the Gospel of Matthew last time. The story of the life of Jesus, as told by Matthew, ends, you might remember, with Jesus giving the disciples some final instructions before he returns to the Father. Those final instructions, they have come to be called the Great Commission. 
The Great Commission is the great directive given to the followers of Jesus by Jesus, the grand mission given to the church, the great cause that Jesus has given us, his followers. What is this great commission? Simply stated, it's to seek to make every person in the world a follower of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts then tells the story of the first disciples carrying on or out this great commission and the beginning of the Christian church following the return of Jesus to the Father. The last verses of Acts chapter 2 describe the life of the church in its earliest days. Flip over to Acts chapter 2 and we'll begin reading in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's go back up to verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What we have here is essentially a blueprint for the church to follow. There are four things that the early Christians devoted themselves to which formed the foundation for the church. Throughout history, Whenever the church has strayed from these things, it has become weak and ineffective. And whenever the church has devoted itself to these same things, it has been strong spiritually and effective in carrying out the work that Jesus has given us to do in this world. Well, what are these things that they devoted themselves to? The apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In our day, we would say they were students of the Bible. A healthy, growing church is a church that makes Bible learning one of its core activities. Someone will say, oh, you Christians, you're always going on and talking about the Bible. The Bible says this. The Bible says that. Yep. And that's the way it's supposed to be for a Christian. The Bible is our primary source for learning Everything essential for being a follower of Jesus Christ. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship or to the fellowship. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia, which means participation, sharing, contributing, partnership. The believers in the early church, they shared life with each other. They were part of a large extended family. They recognized the connection that they shared between them in Christ was the deepest kind possible for human beings. They were connected spiritually through Jesus Christ, which according to Jesus himself, supersedes all other relationships. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is believed to be a reference here to what has come to be known as communion. They gathered together together 
to regularly commemorate the death and the resurrection of Jesus by reenacting the sharing of the bread and the cup that Jesus and his disciples had done on the night before he was crucified. We do it here once a month. At its core, this is an act of worship, and it highlights the importance of being devoted to the worship of God, not just as individuals, but together as a body of believers. See, there is an important and strengthening that takes, there's an important strengthening that takes place when we worship together with other believers as the body of Christ that should not be overlooked or neglected. They devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer is something the first disciples devoted themselves to from the very beginning. The church that is devoted to prayer is a humble church. It's a spirit-led church. It's a wise church. It's a powerful church. A praying church recognizes the spiritual nature of the work that it is engaged in. A praying church acknowledges its dependence on the Lord for its life and success. A praying church is one that is led by the Lord. A praying church gets its strength and its power from the Holy Spirit. Now, in the next verses of this passage, we see how the first believers lived these things out and the results that it produced in their lives and in the lives of those around them. In verse 43, it says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The church was not just another gathering of people. There was an awareness, even among those not in the church, that God was present with these people. God was at work among these people. It says, everyone was filled with awe. The NIV translation of this verse is a little bit unfortunate because it implies that the awe was a reaction to the wonders and signs being performed by the apostles. But that's too limiting based on the wording of the original Greek and as noted in most of the other English translations. Instead, the awe was a reaction to all that was happening among and around the early church. The Greek word translated into English as awe is phobos, which literally means fear. You're familiar with phobias, comes from this same root word. Now, in the context of this passage, the word in our day that comes closest to the meaning of what is being said here is respect. So awe, fear, respect. The believers were not always liked. The church was not always popular. But in those early days, the church was respected. In our current culture, something the church often lacks among those outside the church is respect. There's not a sense that the church is any different than any other gathering of people. It is seen as just a social club of sorts or a political special interest group. When that is how the church is seen by people, then it loses its voice of authority about the things of God. When the church makes political causes and social activities its focus, it's giving away its authority and power and no longer offering what only the church can offer. 
There is no spiritual awe. The church does not need to be popular and well-liked to be effective, but there does need to be a sense that God is present and working among us. And it starts with us in the church. We need to have this reverent fear, awe of God. And then when it can be said of us that everyone is filled with awe, then we will begin to see an awe among those outside the church too. Many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. Jesus was no longer with the disciples physically, but he was continuing to do the same kinds of works now through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a question that is asked is, why don't we see the same kinds of wonders and signs happening in our day that were happening then? First, we need to remember the context of what we're looking at here. We are reading about the earliest days of the church. And during those earliest days, when the apostles were first proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the church was just beginning to form, the Holy Spirit was doing some astonishing things among them to establish the credibility of the apostles' proclamation and to set the early building blocks of the church in place. Wonders and signs have not always been as overtly dramatic as they were in those earliest days. These kinds of things do still happen sometimes, but it depends on the Lord and what He's choosing to do in a certain situation and among a certain people. There are stories of missionaries, for example, who have witnessed dramatic miracles in situations where the credibility of the message of Jesus required such things to happen. Miracles of various kinds, they still happen in our day. We believe in the power of prayer, and we pray expectantly for the Lord to respond to our requests. Many of us have been the personal recipients of the Lord miraculously blessing us and answering our prayers. Our faith and trust in the Lord, it shouldn't be dependent on wonders and signs. But we praise the Lord and we thank Him when He chooses to act in that way. Amen? Forty-four. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. There was such a deep sense of unity and commitment to this new community among the believers that they were pooling their resources together for the common good of them all. Now, before you feel compelled to start selling all of your stuff and giving it to the rest of us, I, I want you to know that this was not an expected practice even in the early church in Jerusalem. It was purely a voluntary thing that these people were doing for one another at this particular time in response to the situation that they were in. I want you to know that there, there's nothing wrong with having personal property. There's nothing wrong with one person being wealthier than another person. What these early Christians were practicing was similar to what we might observe in a loving family caring for the well-being of all of its members. Individual members of a family may 
still have personal property, and one member may be wealthier than another, but there's a sense of obligation and responsibility toward one another that causes them to step in and help when there is a need. The thing we want to take away from the example of these early Christians is is not that we need to give away our personal property to the rest of the church, but to take note that their care and their concern for each other here, that's what we need to imitate. And that care and concern for one another is going to be expressed in all kinds of ways. It might be through financial assistance. It might be through lending a helping hand with labor or expertise or talent or influence or wise counsel. First John 3.16, John wrote this. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them... How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love with word let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. These early Christians didn't just talk about helping each other, they actually helped each other. Jesus said the distinguishing mark of his followers would be their love for each other. Remember John 13:35? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The love he's talking about is more than a sentimental feeling for each other. It includes the practical expression of love through our actions, serving one another, caring for one another, helping one another, looking out for one another. This kind of stuff, it's not always easy. It can be very hard sometimes. I mean, helping those who are our friends, those who we enjoy hanging out with, spending time with, that's not hard. But lending a hand to the difficult, the ungrateful, the undeserving can be a challenge. If it were not for the Holy Spirit giving me strength and motivation, I wouldn't be able to do it. Amen. 46. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It says every day, they met together regularly and consistently. In the temple courts and in their homes, they met together both in the temple and in their homes. They were not just Sunday churchgoers. They were involved in the life of one another and the church as a whole. Church was not something that these people attended. It was who they were. They are the church. This idea of seeing church as something that we go to was a foreign concept to them. When you are a part of a family, you don't go to the family. You are the family. You don't just part of the family when it fits your schedule, when you can got a little spare time, you can tuck it in there. It's who you are. This is who these people were. This is who we are supposed to be. We are the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. 
says he had glad and sincere hearts, joy, gratitude, generosity, sincerity were qualities that dominated their lives. The Greek word translated glad here literally means exuberant joy, great gladness. The word is often used to imply dancing, jumping, leaping for joy. What, what a great picture we're given here of the heart state of these early believers. They were leaping for joy over their salvation and this new family that they were a part of. The Greek word translated sincere. It literally means without duplicity, simple, pure of intention, humble. What a beautiful and rare person it is that possesses those qualities. We see a radical generosity among these early Christians. They were sharing with, with one another. They were looking out for one another. They were taking care of one another. And without any kind of ulterior motive behind it. Have you ever had someone offer to help you and you were reluctant to accept it because you knew there were strings attached? You knew that there was an expectation that was going to be coming along with that assistance. Well, that was not present among them. They just helped to help. Forty-seven, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It says praising God. Their devotion to worshiping the Lord is mentioned here again. We were made to worship. A.W. Tozer said, without worship, we go about miserable. It says they were enjoying the favor of the people. Now, in these earliest days of the church, the believers enjoyed an acceptance by the other people in the city of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, that will be very short-lived. A time is coming very soon in the story when persecution is going to break out against the church. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So as the believers lived out this new life that Jesus has made possible for them, and the Lord kept working among them, adding people to the church then. When the, when the church functions in the way that Jesus intends it to function, people are drawn to it. As we read this description of the church in these early days, our hearts long for this same kind of thing in our day. This is the kind of church that we want to be part of. Amen? Yes. Of course. Yes. In closing, I'll make a couple, couple of uh, uh, closing remarks here. First is, Timothy Keller wrote this about the church. It says, churches should feel more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. In a job interview, people try to put their best foot forward, exaggerating their strengths and hiding their weaknesses. At a doctor's office, it's assumed everyone there is sick and needs help. This is a doctor's office. No offense, but it is assumed among all of us, about all of us, that we're sick and we need help. Not that we have it together.
Let's follow the example the first Christians have set for us. I think it's helpful for us to remember that church, real church, that Jesus creates is not easy. It can be really hard sometimes. It involves sacrifice. First, the sacrifice of Jesus himself, and second, the sacrifice of you and me for each other. We're not going to hit the ideal all the time. We're going to fail each other sometimes. We're people. We're sinful, and we're broken on this side of heaven. But as we continue to follow Jesus, depending on the Holy Spirit for love and power, and extending a generous measure of grace and forgiveness to each other, the Lord will create his church among us. We pray for that. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we, we thank you for the example of the early church the way you were building the church in those early days before we got clever and smart and, you know, real helpful about how things should be done. They were just simple, humble folk. Just looking to Jesus, trusting in you, Lord, and, and just loving one another in a very simple pure way, and we we pray, God, for the same thing for us. We thank you that you have made the church. We thank you that we're part of the church. We ask, Lord, that you would grow this church, you would purify us, that you would strengthen us, Lord, that we would love each other more that we would serve and give ourselves away to you and to one another, and that there would be an awe among everyone, both in the church and outside the church, Lord, as they see you present and working. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.